0: So welcome to Regenerative Medicine today, this is John Murphy and it's my pleasure to welcome a set of special guests who are going to discuss the emerging topic of rehabilitation and regenerative medicine. So let me begin by introducing our guests and then we'll begin our discussion. So first of all, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Clifford Brubaker. Dr. Brubaker is the Dean and Professor of the School of Health and Rehabilitation Science at the University of Pittsburgh. We're also pleased to have Dr. Uram Vodovos. Dr. Vodovos is Professor in the Department of Surgery, with secondary appointments in the Department of Computational and Systems Biology, Department of Bioengineering, Department of Immunology, and the Department of Communication Science and Disorders in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Science. And we also have with us Dr. Catherine Bertolini-Abbott. Dr. Bertolini-Abbott is a professor in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences. So as I said at the outset, we're going to discuss this fusion between rehabilitation and regenerative medicine. And I'd like to begin by asking Dr. Brubaker to give us some history in that regard. Dr. Brubaker, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today.
1: Thanks, John. I met Professor Joram Vodovitz at the first McGowan Retreat. He was standing before a poster on computational modeling of inflammation. The essence of the poster was the fact that they had seeded cartilage cells on a scaffold and they were exposing it to a cyclic tensile stress. And they were looking at the change in uh, cytokines. As the tensile stress was increased, there was uh, they observed a decrease in the inflammatory cytokines and to a low point, that was followed by subsequent increase in inflammatory markers. Uh, this was a rather fascinating phenomenon that appeared relevant in terms of strategy for physical training and musculoskeletal therapy.
0: So, Dr. Brubaker, you've introduced the fact that rehabilitation has traditionally been a a linear activity after treatment, whereas uh, you and your colleagues have identified the fact that uh, rehabilitation and regeneration need to happen concurrently. And I think that's a significant point. And we'll come back to that again as well. So, you have introduced the concept of stress. You've introduced the concept of modeling. Perhaps we could ask Dr. Vodovos to talk a little bit about some of his modeling experiences?
2: The points you brought up are, are I think, two really important ones. One is the idea that rehabilitation actually is something that has to start very soon or as close as possible to the original injury rather than something that you have to wait a long time for or some period of time for to initiate. Because the longer you wait, the less optimal the outcomes are, I think, going to be. The other point that I think that Dr. Brubaker brought up was the idea that stress is stress and that you really need to think about how the body just integrates stress rather than seeing it as distinct, separate events. Now, the reason I'm saying those two things as a prelude to discussion of the modeling uh, work that we've done is that those concepts are pretty much embedded in our approach to computational modeling of inflammation and tissue healing and regeneration. We see it as an ongoing Nonlinear, multi-scale phenomenon that evolves from the original injury ripples if you will outwards but is actually feeding forward and having negative feedbacks to stop it at all stages all the time so a lot of people think about processes like uh, inflammation after injury as linear where if you can imagine it as just a, a long string you start at the one end of it and then you go to the next part and the next part And so then when they think about dynamics, or things that are changing with time, they're visualizing a linear picture. Instead, you have to think of, imagine taking that same string and balling it up so it looks like a big spaghetti that's tied up. It's still the string, and it still has a beginning, and it still has an end. But if you look at it, it looks very compact, and it looks like it's all in one place, and it looks like things are happening at the same time, but in fact, they're happening in sequence, but non-linearly. And depending on which side of it you're looking at, it looks somewhat different. I think that's a key aspect to this that people have a hard time visualizing, is that that's how biological processes like inflammation evolve. And the only way for us to really get a handle on how processes that work like that can become predictable and become modifiable is to create computational models. Because the computer can handle dynamics that are happening simultaneously in different dimensions and in different directions. We as humans have a harder time figuring that out and so that's sort of the underlying principle of that. The other piece that's very important is the way these feedback loops that drive those dynamics occur are basically intertwined injury and then the stress response to that injury with inflammation being the communication language by which that happens back and forth. So that's sort of the generalized structure of what we have in our model.
0: So Dr. Vodovotz, what you've just told us is that uh, you have the ability on a computer to model disease processes and also to model the, the healing process that hopefully follows.
2: That's right. And it's not so much injury and inflammation and then healing, but you want to think about it as a simultaneous process of injury, inflammation, and some amount of healing some amount of damage and a corresponding response that is the beginning of healing. And it's really depending on the specific circumstances of the injury, the prior history of the person undergoing the injury, and that's including prior injuries and also genetics, age, and gender, the rates and exact manifestations of how all these pieces will play out will vary. But the way we want to think about them is injury almost simultaneous inflammation and almost simultaneous beginnings of healing, right? And then the idea is to try to modulate this process so that you minimize self-sustaining inflammation and you get productive healing. If you have self-sustaining inflammation, you generally block proper healing. So
0: another thing I just learned from your comments is that inflammation isn't necessarily bad.
2: No, no. I would say that so... It's uh, and, and I've said that in the prior podcast we've done as well, I think people have to understand that inflammation is an absolutely necessary intermediate and a necessary process, a necessary communication framework to connect the pieces, the dots, if you will, between the injury and the healing. Without inflammation in between, it just will not happen. The key part is being able to get a handle on what is inflammation that is adaptive that is appropriate to the original injury, and that is productive in that it's driving healing, as opposed to inflammation that becomes self-sustaining and then, in essence, it excludes productive healing. So if you have self-sustaining inflammation, the exact mediators that are driving that are the exact ones that are suppressing proper healing.
0: So are you suggesting that as a scientist or with, with collaboration with a physician that you can moderate or modulate the amount of and type of inflammation?
2: Yes, and I think that there are different ideas about how to get that done. There are different levels at which one could intervene. There, there may be, at certain levels, given accessibility of the tissue that needs to be addressed or the stage of the injury or the, the, the syndrome, how late you are in the process, how early, but you can't begin to have a rational approach to this without some way of integrating all this information and creating a predictive framework. And right now, there really is no other way other than computational modeling to even come close to that. Now, that having been said, you can do computational modeling right or wrong, just like you can do any aspect of science right or wrong. And so if you construct models or approach the modeling enterprise with biases or in a way that already got some preconceived notions about how the outcomes will be achieved, then the likelihood is that you will probably not get to a way of truly modulating uh, inflammation and healing in the way that would ultimately be positive for the patient. However, if you approach it with the frameworks I've discussed, which are I think now fairly well accepted, at least the parts of them are, and put them together in the right way, uh, verify predictions against data, ideally human-level data, then you can, uh, I think, have a chance at being able to to do this productively. And so one example where we did that, in fact, the first example where we did that, was in the context of a kind of tissue injury that perhaps not a lot of people think about, but that is one that is, number one, important, and number two, amenable to observation and to some degree manipulation, and that was in the context of vocal fold injury.
0: So I know you and Dr. Bertolini Abbott have worked together in this particular aspect. Perhaps you can begin and tell us a little bit about that particular study.
2: I remember that we met in Dr. Brubaker's office because he was very interested in trying to bring some of the ideas that he and I had discussed to the rehabilitation field with this idea of trying to drive regenerative rehabilitation, and he introduced Dr. Bertolini Abbott to me and was explaining to me about her project, which she will elaborate on in a minute. But to me, I just thought immediately, it's a tissue, it's being injured, there's an inflammatory response, there's some sort of damage that occurs, that damage could be self-sustaining in a positive feedback way via inflammation, and then there's an outcome to that, which is an impaired ability to use the vocal folds appropriately uh, associated with inflammation and pain and, and various other secondary sequelae. But it all comes from this idea that I think, again, Dr. Brubaker and I share, which is that stress is stress, damage is damage. You don't have to think about it as one very particular kind of outcome needs a very particular kind of approach and a particular kind of measurement and a particular kind of modeling. I've been and, and still am very interested in the idea of generalizing the modeling approach that we do to different tissues, different circumstances with the same basic core set of interactions.
0: So with that as an introduction, perhaps we can learn a little bit more about the, the vocal fold problem or the solution, perhaps.
3: Well, my interest in this domain had a kind of a fortuitous beginning historically. I am a speech-anguish pathologist and I am specialized in voice disorders. I was originally... I'm a professional singer, making a very poor living <laughs> in my 20s doing so. And at one point, I was working in Boston as the director of several of the Harvard Hospital uh, clinics in otolaryngology. And one day, it was a Tuesday, I had done voice therapy for people with Parkinson's disease all day long. And this particular kind of therapy requires the clinician to get the patient to feel like he or she is shouting. And to do so, it's helpful to shout at them. So I shouted all day long. And that evening, I taught a three-hour class without amplification in a local university. On Wednesday, I had the same scenario, again teaching in the evening, a three-hour class without amplification. Thursday, the same thing with patients with Parkinson's disease, and I was supposed to have a voice lesson that evening. Well, I was hoarse. I was inflamed. I looked at my vocal folds. They didn't look good, and I wanted to not have my voice lesson. I wanted to rest my voice, but my voice teacher made me sing, and lo and behold, within five or ten minutes, my voice started sounding and feeling a lot better. My high notes were back. I didn't have this big hiss that came out before the notes came out, and I thought that was rather curious. I looked at my vocal folds again, and they looked a lot better than I thought they should have, given what they had looked like a couple of hours before. This happened for a few weeks in a row, and by chance I ran into a person that I hadn't seen for years from another city. He had been a, a concert pianist, but then he had turned biologist, and I didn't even know he was working across the street from me in Boston. And I said, Andy, can you make, does that make sense to you? And he goes, Yes. He says, everybody knows that certain forms of tissue mobilization can be anti inflammatory. I said, Everybody knows that. This is complete news to my field, because in my field, when you get inflamed vocal folds for any reason, whether it be viral or bacterial or due to high impact stresses of the vocal folds during phonation, the standard wisdom is to rest your voice, rest the tissue, right? And he said, no, um, in any field that I've ever looked at, we know that uh, cyclic tensile strain can be anti-inflammatory. And one of the things that was interesting about that observation was that the vocal folds in vibrating, my vocal they are vibrating about 196 times per second, okay? And that constitutes cyclic tensile strain of tissue, and that's exactly what the vocal folds do in every cycle of vibration. And so this became fascinating to myself and my friend Andy, because we have a system in the vocal folds that is really, really well suited to study the hypothesis that cyclic tensile strain can be anti-inflammatory, not only for tissue in Petri dishes, but also in human subjects. And so that triggered a series of experiments. First, we had to come up with a methodology for measuring inflammation in the vocal folds. And we published a first paper in 2003 where we found that we could take a vocally healthy person, have that person scream for an hour, we call these the scream studies, and inflame that person. And we did this with a person who was not only happy to do so and thought it was funny, but she was a person who on Monday mornings during football season regularly came in without a voice, and by Wednesday or Thursday she had recovered, so we knew she had the ability to harm herself vocally and then recover. So at any rate, we found that if we uh, took, uh, at the time, swabbed and now suction secretions from the vocal folds and put them into a sterile environment and later analyzed them with ELISA, which is a type of mediator concentration assay, we can estimate the concentration of these inflammatory and anti-inflammatory mediators, estimate what is in the underlying tissue. And we were able to do that in a first study published in 2003 with a single subject. And then more recently, we published a study, the real study that we wanted to do, and that was we took nine people who had no prior vocal training. They came in again, and they were vocally normal at the outset of this experiment. And they talked loudly. They didn't scream. The first subject did, but these folks talk loudly, about as loudly as a teacher would talk for about an hour. And then we got their secretions again as we had at baseline. And then we randomly assigned them to one of three groups. One group was to sit in the clinic and chat on and off for a period of four hours with an investigator. A second treatment was to assign them to absolute vocal rest for those four hours. And they were monitored to make sure that they didn't use their voices. And in the third condition, we trained them to do these simple humming exercises, which are kind of similar to classical singing exercises, but without having the expertise or the skill level that a classical singer would have, on and off for four hours as monitored by a clinician in the clinic. Then we got their secretions again. Then we sent them home and asked them to continue in their respective treatments until the next morning, and then they came back again 24 hours after baseline, and we got their secretions again to be analyzed with Eliza. And lo and behold, what we found was that the people who just talked spontaneously after the injury... The next morning when they came in, their inflammatory mediator concentrations were off the charts. They were really large. The people who had engaged in voice rest, so resting the tissue, looked much better. They weren't back to baseline, but they looked much better. And if we had looked at only those two conditions, our results would have been consistent with traditional clinical wisdom, and that is if you hurt yourself, hurt your vocal folds, rest the tissue. But then when we looked at the results for a series of mediators, not just one, not just two or three, but five different inflammatory mediators, what we found was, at all of them that we looked at that the results were best for the people who had engaged in these humming exercises. In the sense that the five inflammatory mediators were the lowest at 24 hours compared to the other two conditions. But for a single anti-inflammatory mediator, which is IL-10, and it is often thought to be stimulated by tissue motion, those values were the greatest for these humming exercises. They were next for the spontaneous speech exercises, and they were lowest for tissue rest, because if it's tissue motion that calls this mediator into the tissue, if the tissue is completely rested, then you're not going to call that mediator into the tissue. By the way, this methodology is not uniformly accepted as a methodology. I am becoming more confident that suctioning secretions or taking secretions from the vocal folds because it's not quite clear what is the relationship between what we suction off the top of the vocal folds and what's going on in tissue. We think we have answered that question reasonably in the literature. But in the meantime, there is somewhat of a paradigm shift across voice specialized clinics in the country and even in the world to orient towards these humming exercises rather than voice rest in the case of acute injury. My former doctoral student, now Dr. Nicole Lee at the University of Maryland, was then trained graciously and exceptionally by Dr. Vodovotes after Dr. Brubaker brought us together. And she was the one who generated the first model that I just described that could predict with reasonable accuracy what somebody would look like at twenty-four hours in terms of their inflammatory and anti-inflammatory profiles. And I'll just say one more other thing here quickly, and that is that we have since replicated and are in the process of submitting the results, not only for these humming exercises, but also for meditation. And when we have added meditation to these humming exercises, we're able to actually increase the anti-inflammatory effect compared to either meditation or humming exercises alone. And we believe the anti-inflammatory meditation effects are mediated by, and have been documented by numerous other researchers, mediated by central nervous system effects having to do with parasympathetic nervous system, whereas the humming exercise results are mediated by mechanisms in the local tissue.
0: This is fascinating in and of itself in terms of the findings you've derived. And I presume this will lead to alternative strategies in terms of therapy.
3: It has. It has already.
0: But the other thing that's fascinating to me is that using Dr. modeling technique, he's been able to predict or replicate these findings Mm -hmm. in a computer Mm -hmm. that uh, you found experimentally.
3: Absolutely. His model, which was adapted by Dr. Nicole Lee for the case of the vocal folds, with those subjects, she was able to look at their inflammatory profile at four hours, I believe it was, uh, after the treatment programs initiated, and predict with good accuracy what people look like at 24 hours.
0: Fascinating. So, Dr. Vodovos, the techniques that are being used actually give the ability to predict future outcomes, and I think that's really significant. Can you share a little bit of detail about that, please?
2: Yeah, so when we were able to prove to ourselves that the basic modeling framework we were using to think about inflammation was capable of making predictions, really dramatic predictions in human subjects. I think that gave us the confidence to try to extend this. So an obvious one is a major traumatic injury, so blunt trauma. We've made models that recapitulate multiple compartments uh, or systems in the the body that are interconnected via inflammation. We've made patient-specific models. So using a data set starting from a, a pool of about 500 patients that we were looking at prospectively, we made about 30 patient-specific models. From those patient-specific models, we created a 10,000-patient simulated clinical population in blunt trauma, and we able to make predictions about certain features of these patients that we then validated in somewhere between 100 and 150 patients. The key outcome of that study was, each piece will appear to go in the direction that you would have believed it should go. But when you put it all together into the behavior of this patient population, the predicted outcome is almost diametrically opposite of what all those individual predictions were. And when you go out to validate that in the larger cohort of patients, in fact, that's what happens. So this, I think, speaks to the crux of the problem with trying to modulate inflammation by using linear thinking about how it is that these processes work. At every step of the way, whatever validation that you will use, even at the level of clinical validation, will appear to go in the right direction. But then when you ultimately go to the large clinical trial, the ultimate outcome may in fact be no net benefit, which is the outcome of a large majority of trials that modulate inflammation and healing. And so I think there's a very strong cautionary note. Now that doesn't mean that we are doomed to fail in this enterprise. What it really is saying is that you need to look at specific subgroups of patients. You can delineate what those subgroups are based on mediators, and other parameters that you could measure in the patients, but those by themselves are not enough. You need to lay that information onto a framework of computational modeling to be able to sort of delineate what these patient subgroups should be like and then predict what their features will be. I'm very excited about being able to do that with patient populations. So another patient population we've done similar things with is traumatic brain injury populations, and that was also a study that was catalyzed by Dr. Brubaker. And then more recently, a very nice multidisciplinary study in the context of spinal cord injury, where we collaborated with Dr. David Brienza in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Science to look at post spinal cord injury complications. The main one was the formation of pressure ulcers. We connected this model to another more abstracted model that was in essence speaking to the underlying tissue properties of these patients that you could get insights on non-invasively using a Doppler probe measurements of blood flow. So by essentially creating a, a localized pressure test on an area of tissue on a patient or a non-injured subject, you can get back information about blood flow. And we were able to show that on a group level, this framework could distinguish non-injured patients from patients with spinal cord injury. So literally based on a straightforward blood flow measurement you didn't even need to measure all these inflammatory mediators. You could just take that and you can make predictions already about this inflammatory and healing process in the patients. And then second, you, you could even do it on a patient-by-patient basis.
0: Dr. Brubaker, we've uh, heard some exciting developments here today. Let me ask, where do you see the future in terms of these emerging technologies?
3: Well,
1: probably the most evident would be in the area of musculoskeletal injury, and joint injury where inflammation is, is always present. I, I think there's a, a quite a wide open area of opportunity looking at arthritic joint pain. How can you begin now to uh, treat this in a manner where we have insight, where we can be guided by, by, by predictive modeling? I would say that all of physical therapy could be enhanced by the use of uh, modeling, specific modeling, to look at uh, how patients patient's going to respond. There are a number of injuries that people sustain that are very difficult to rehabilitate.
0: So uh, I'd like to thank our guests for sharing what I think is some fascinating technologies. They've shared some fascinating results to date. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this series. Remind our listeners that you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Until we meet again on another podcast, thank you for listening.